My guest today is Dr. Galina Gaskowski, serial entrepreneur and internationally recognized privacy, compliance, and security expert. Welcome to the Women in Tech Podcast, a special series of Heads in the Cloud episodes hosted by Michelle Licardi, President and Chief Revenue Officer of Star to Star. Welcome everyone to Heads in the Cloud. I'm Michelle Hardy, President and CRO of Star to Star, and I'm leading our ongoing discussion about women in tech. My guest today is Dr. Galina Gaskowski. Galina is a serial entrepreneur, an internationally recognized privacy, compliance, and security expert, and is currently serving on several boards. Um, we worked together at CA Technologies. It was my great pleasure. So I'd like to know, Galina, what have you been up to since we... Uh, work together back then. Yeah, it was fabulous, by the way. I share the sentiment. It was great working together. And uh, I've actually done a few different things. I moved on from CA to autonomy. And uh, I was working for in the information governance business unit, actually in a key role there. And then the key role in information governance at HP. Uh, I left HP to uh, join VaporStream, and I'm still on the board of VaporStream at this point. Uh, I also love working with emerging companies and helping them become successful because that's really what I'm very passionate uh, about. I've had a couple of very nice, successful exits from companies that I was on the boards of, and I really enjoy that, helping entrepreneurs realize their potential, their dreams, et cetera. So that's really what I'm up to at the moment. Well, that's great. You've also done some volunteering, right, with different art organizations. Oh, yes, yes. Well, thank you for actually mentioning that. Yes. So in addition to work, this is just kind of what I'm doing at work. Uh, yes, I've been on the board of ARMA, which uh, I love, which is an association for information governance professionals. I'm on the board of the Executive Women's Forum, which is women in uh, security and privacy and compliance. Talk about women in STEM. That's a great organization. Just giving a plug for the organization <laughs> to meet lots and lots of wonderful people and uh, kind of join the sisterhood if people want to. Uh, and it's a wonderful thing to do. Uh, I'm on that board. Uh, and um, I do a lot of community volunteering as well. And my latest volunteering stint is um, scuba diving and cleaning tanks at the Jerusalem Aquarium whenever I'm in Jerusalem. <laughs> wow, that, that is something else. And, and no one on this call can actually see, but Galena has the most cool backsplash on her video right now of a bull shark that she was explaining to me that she took a, a picture of from only like two feet, two feet, two <laughs> feet away. A, a, a woman who swims with bull sharks and has had as much uh, serial success uh, and is giving back. Uh, she's an incredible, incredible inspiration uh, to me. Oh, thank you, Michelle. Career. Thank uh, you, thank you. And I do want to say one one thing, if I may, that's really important to me, especially through uh, Executive Women's Forum and other forums. I volunteer for uh, Columbia University Barnard College. Um, I actually mentor a lot of young women in STEM, and that's a passion of mine as well. So I do volunteer my time. I do that every uh, uh, three to six months. I take on a new mentee. And um, really, really, uh, that's one of the ways I like to give back is to bring other women into the STEM community. Oh, absolutely. And Galena, you know, one of the things I can say when I was a young woman coming up in tech uh, at CA Technologies 
you were one of the women who I most admired and who helped me along the way um, and, and always took an extra few minutes to explain um, technical concepts and to make sure that I was plugged in. So I want to say first, thank you. I appreciate you. Uh, you certainly made an impact to my life and my career. And it's so great to be able to reconnect after all this time. You know, I, I think one of the things that I want to talk about today is really how you came up. Because, you know, as I understand it, when you first came to the United States, uh, you really didn't have anything. And, and you really made something of yourself, really. And I, and I hate to say from nothing. Uh, you know, it sounds so cliche. But would love to hear that story and you discuss the experience of that journey you took. Um, sure. So, so you're, you're right. So my family came here from uh, communist Russia in 1976. I was uh, a small child at that time. Well, not so small. I was uh, 11. And um, at that time, to leave Russia was impossible because people did not were not allowed to leave. And I will spare the listeners the whole story. But P.S., when, when we were allowed to leave finally, the only thing we could take out or the only financial uh, assets we could take out was $250 per person in the family. So being a family of six and leaving the country with um, um, $1,500 to our name, right? Uh, and that was it. Uh, no language skills. I did not speak English. My parents certainly did not speak English. Neither, neither did anybody else in the family. And at that time, it wasn't the, the time of the internet. And we'll be talking a lot about that. Nobody knew where they were going. Um, the blackout of news and information flowing into Russia was pretty much total. Um, and you only got the propaganda that the government wanted to, you to see. So you kind of left and you left as a stateless refugee. So it's not that you left with a passport. People said to me, well, did you go straight to New York? I said, well, certainly not. You left and then you asked for asylum. And then you were what we would call in today's world extremely vetted. So before you were allowed to come into America, you had to go through a process and you had to wait um, till you got your permissions and you got your refugee status. So, yeah, um, talking about I wouldn't say coming from nothing because you don't come from nothing. You come from your family and your background, et cetera, but coming with nothing, I'm very familiar with. Um, you know, my, one of my vivid childhood memories is going to a grocery store with my mother and saying, you know, wow, there's so many uh, snacks that I would love to have, but I know I can't ask her because there's no money for that. You know, she has to buy real food, not this. Yeah. So at a very early age, you realize the value of what you have which is uh, uh which is a good thing by the way well, it is a good thing I, I i was just thinking i i should give my own children a dose of that at some point uh as i if i look across my countertop with every snack imaginable with uh two teenagers and two toddlers in my house these days but uh, i so i i can't even imagine um you know the stressors that must have been on your your parents uh to oh, yeah. come with so with so little in their pockets right but thankfully such a strong family bond. Um, and, and so yeah. when you got here, you know, what were your mentors? What were your role models? Because you've just, you've, you have become such a powerhouse uh, right. in, in, as a woman in, in, in technology. So, you know, what got you there? So I want to say that my first inspiration came from my mom. 
so until I got to America, I didn't realize that there were women who didn't work and stayed home with children. I didn't think that was a thing because <laughs> <laughs> I, I really was not familiar with that concept. And um, my mom was a brilliant mathematician. And um, when she got to this country, she very quickly decided that uh, uh, the best course of action, given that her language wasn't perfect and she couldn't go and lecture, uh, was for her to go into computer science. And she took classes and she became one of really the first uh, women systems analysts in the financial sector. So I was very inspired by her. Uh, in terms of, first of all, I, that, that was my first exposure to computers to begin with. I was always exposed to sciences from her and from the rest of my family, but certainly being exposed to computers and the excitement of doing something new in technology came from her. So she was probably, not probably, she was definitely my first and most important mentor. So I think it starts, a lot of that starts in the home. Um, the other person I really want to mention is my academic advisor. So um, I graduated high school and I went to Columbia University to, at that time to Barnard College. And, um, my, and then I did my doctoral work at Columbia as well. My thesis advisor was at that time one of two faculty, female faculty members at Columbia. And she was a great inspiration to me professionally. Uh, just an amazing woman, very non-pretentious, quiet, published tremendous amount of work, brilliant. So she was another one that really hugely inspired me in those earlier years. Um, the third person that I should mention that really inspired me, although he was not a woman, <laughs> was um, my piano teacher. So I also play classical piano. I'm not sure I've ever shared that with you at CA, but I do. I play classical piano fairly seriously. I've actually even played at Carnegie Hall, but as an amateur, not as a professional, <laughs> just the caveat there. And um, when, when we got to this country, I got a scholarship to study music. Obviously my parents couldn't afford it. I, I was offered to take an exam and I got to study music. And I had this teacher who took me on as a scholarship student. And I really feel that with him, I learned a lot of discipline and perseverance and sort of taking that second curriculum on in addition to learning a couple of languages and trying to succeed in school. Just having all of that and having that, that love of music and discipline, et cetera, imparted by him and sort of seeing that other side of what you can do, having a well-rounded individual at all times, that was huge for me. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and I think there is a correlation between music and math too. Yeah. Um, so I definitely think there's something there, um, but God, how blessed you were to have a, a mother that was so deeply into the sciences and math oh, and, yeah. and, yeah, and to be that far ahead. I mean, that, that, um, that's awesome. I, I think that that's just super, super inspiring. Um, so what are your, what's your advice to others that are trying to make it uh, in, in the IT space, uh, whether they have a background or not? What, what would you say to them? Well, the first thing is that anybody who is, has the persistence and perseverance and the desire can be successful. If I could come to this country with absolutely nothing, 
and um, meaning financially, et cetera. My family had no connections, no money, nothing at all. And if you're able to succeed because you really deeply want to, um, anybody can do it. So don't be discouraged. That's number one. Um, number two, um, find the right mentors. I think that's absolutely key. You know, no person is an island unto themselves. And I always tell people it's okay to ask for help. There are no medals for delivering something alone. There's only medals for delivering something. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I'm in agreement. You know, and I, I, it reminded me of a, a count what you were talking about perseverance, because I, I personally believe perseverance is the most important skill that, that anyone can have. And it reminded me of that Calvin Coolidge quote, nothing in this world can take the place of persistence. Talent will not, nothing mm -hmm. is more common than unsuccessful men with talent. Genius will not, unrewarded genius is almost a proverb. Education will not, the world is full of educated derelicts. Persistence and determination alone are omnipotent. The slogan press on has solved and always will solve the problems of the human race and press on with help. I think it's the- that's, that's right, press on and press on with help and do find, find the mentors, find the inspirations, find the people who are genuinely there who want to help you. You know, who, who are really on your side, because they will be, whether it's through your community, through your colleagues, through your family, um, what have you, make those contacts, keep those contacts. And the other thing I say is, you know, make sure you pay it forward, so to speak. So if somebody helps you, you help somebody else. If you kind of go into it with that attitude and you say, yep, I'm going to ask for this and that, but then I'm going to bring somebody else with me. That's how you really build a, a solid community in the society so that's kind of my advice that's been my motto throughout my life um and it it's served me well for you so i yeah. think that's, uh, i look I, i'll follow in your footsteps on that I, I absolutely agree so let's address i think something else that is uh you know is troubles me right is the gender gap in stem hmm. um so <laughs> Census data reports that women made gains from 8% of STEM workers in 1970 to 27% in 2019, but men still dominate the field. I think men made up 52% of all US workers, but 73% of the STEM workers. Mm -hmm. What's your take on this? Why is that still happening? Um, so my, my take is that for whatever reason, uh, to this day, which actually is very puzzling to me why to this day, girls are really not sufficiently encouraged, whether it's in school, whether it's at home, to take up the STEM professions. It's not that they are less capable, not at all. It's somehow they're not encouraged, they're not nurtured to do that. Uh, maybe the, whether it's the parents, whether it's the teachers, where, where it's, maybe it's the situations in the classroom, because there have been studies that show that perhaps girls are less likely to speak up in a classroom with a lot of um, men or boys in the classroom where they may feel funny about it. Whatever the reasons are, that we still have that gap early on. Uh, and I did notice it anecdotally in my um, son's AP classes, like AP computer science, there were very few girls. And here, this is just a in a regular um, high school. 
And it's always a wonder to me why the girls are not encouraged. Interestingly enough, by the time they get to college, and I mentor a lot of college students in STEM, they feel like they're so far behind that they can't catch up. And I think that's another fallacy as well that we need to dispel for uh, young women entering the workforce because they think there's only one way to be, let's say in computer science and programming, you have to program. And if the boys had a head start, they won't be able to catch up, which is not true. And when you open up the amount of available opportunity and the number of professions and career choices that you could go into, which may not be straight coding. Right. Could be business analysis. It could be data analytics. Exactly. Exactly. There's so much there could be interface design, user experience. There's so much. And yet somehow they pigeonhole themselves. Yeah, I like uh, to call that STEAM instead of STEM. It's where you put the arts um, and creativity. And I do think, absolutely. I mean, whether male or female, I mean, I think that that's one of the things that we haven't put enough emphasis on in the schools is that there it, it takes a tremendous amount of creativity to build great products. Absolutely. Um, and just having a talented coder is never enough. No, no, it's not. And, and so I think that that's maybe part of the first way that we need to uh, change how people think about technology. And I think people think bits and bytes, and it's not all bits and bytes. Some of it is some very big picture thinking and user experience design and just thinking about what products are needed in the world versus, uh, you know, I, I, those are that to me, that was always the intimidation factor for me in STEM was I, how do you look around the corner to see the, the next thing that people really need uh, and, and what what then you can ask someone to code? No, a- absolutely. So there's so many opportunities and they're missed. And by the way, when we were at CA together, um, three of us who were SVPs were asked to look into why we didn't have enough women in the various bands below us coming up through the ranks. We had quite a few women in the technical tracks at the lower bands, and then only three of us at the highest bands, and almost no one in the middle. And it turned out that all the cliches and stereotypes that you think about of why women are not promoted were true. Like for example, if there's a job posted and there are 10 qualifications, a woman would look at it and say, oh, I could only do seven out of 10. I'm not going to even apply. A man would look at it and say, oh, I could do three out of 10. I could learn the other seven. So back to having that courage to say, no, I'm really good. I really know. I can really learn. And by the way, that is also learned by having setbacks. So I have to say, I haven't been successful in everything I touched. And sometimes failing at something and picking yourself up and going on is a more valuable lesson than a success at something because it's okay to try and fail. And I actually feel that we still as a society teach our boys that that's okay, but maybe the girls don't quite get that lesson. Yeah. Yeah. And I think we need to change that. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I know you've also done a lot. So, so I'm going to sort of switch topics a little bit here. Um, I think we could probably stay on STEM all day, but (laughs) 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 But I know you've obviously done a lot in the world of 
data analytics and artificial intelligence. So I, I think I want to I want to tone in on our artificial intelligence. Of course, it's becoming more and more integrated into our daily lives, and and you know. I know more and more people are trying to trust in its in its accuracy and the private. Yet sometimes its ability to manipulate human decision making is something that people question. You know, is it artificial intelligence or stupidity in some cases? Um, mm-hmm. So, what are your thoughts on 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 artificial intelligence and how it plays into technology and decision making in the future? What a great question! So, I actually did my doctoral work early on in artificial intelligence, particularly in language recognition and expert systems, which are the precursor to the big data analysis systems, right? So uh, maybe, and I'll just throw that out, the term artificial intelligence is also slightly misleading because what does that really mean, right? Um, You want the computer to mimic and, and do some of the things that humans do. So when we talk about language recognition, and speech recognition, we've really accomplished a lot. We could speak to our systems, right? You speak to Google, you speak to your Alexa or whatever you're speaking to, that's all artificial intelligence because it's parsing the language and recognizing the language. And that's one aspect of it. Another aspect of it is something we don't think about is computer vision. And we all have it in our cars with sensors, right? Lane assist, all of that is vision work. So processing of what do I see and what do I think is going to happen when I see it, is all part of that same artificial intelligence. Um, so when we talk about the world of, about the world of artificial intelligence, we have to understand, well, what are we using it for? And, you know, the trust factor that you raised is a little bit different. So, uh, uh, and let me actually pick a very um, maybe unbiased or us as unbiased an example as I can, and then maybe get into some of the biases that we see in artificial intelligence. Because honestly, the machine only learns from whatever the humans feed it. So for example, this is my uh, non-biased example. Uh, My son is working on an artificial intelligence project at his university. He's in a lab, which is a microfluidity lab, and they're doing biotechnology. So they have this, won't bore the listeners with the details, but they have this little chip that contains little microchambers, hundreds of them. And a cancer patient who needs to get chemo treatment could have their sample taken. This is the research they're doing. Mm-hmm. A sample of the cancerous liquid. This is specifically non, for non-solid tumors. The liquid could get injected into these hundreds of chambers, and each chamber could be injected with a particular chemotherapy. Why? Because then you could say this particular patient will respond best to this chemo and you could custom treat them with existing treatments with the most effective treatment that will be done for them. Now, why am I telling you this? Where's the artificial intelligence? It's impossible to read the results by human eye, right? It just takes way too long for somebody to read all these chips and say, oh, well, how many dead cancer cells are here versus how many dead cancer cells are here. So he actually wrote an algorithm and this is artificial intelligence for sure and machine learning that recognizes live and dead cells, counts them up 
and produces the result. Now it could be done in minutes. Now, how does the algorithm know what's, what does a cancer cell look like? What's a dead cancer cell? What's a partially dead cancer cell? All of that it learns over time. And the more data it's fed, the better it learns. Is it 100%? Certainly not. Uh, can it get pretty close to really, really good or as good as a human eye? Absolutely. But it's also, it, it, you know, but I think the point you, you have here, though, is it's the human, though, that's feeding the data sets in. Absolutely. And, and without the human feed, uh, I, I, I guess it's just like uh, a regular diet. If it's, if it's garbage in, you get garbage out. But if yep. you... <laughs> exactly, exactly. And the human had to identify to the machine saying a dead cell looks like this. A live sunset looks like this. And as you train the algorithm on more and more collections of data, it becomes better and better at its own uh, derivatives and recognition. Now, why am I telling you about this project? Because there's some really excellent, excellent projects in artificial intelligence like this, which would make these kinds of treatments impossible if you were not doing the artificial intelligence. Now, where does it become pro problematic? It starts becoming problematic when you get away from the very specific problem solving and get into general issues. So let's say if I feed my algorithm a collection of uh, tweets and I say, learn what the society is thinking, well, depending on what I happen to feed it, it will have very different views of society, right? right. And, and therein lies the problem because which way is it going to bias? It's not biased in its own right. It's going to be swayed by the data you feed it and by saying what is the majority and the patterns that it happens to deduce. So, um, so the megaset is important. The, the, set, the set of data that you put in is going to uh, predispose your artificial intelligence. So, so that's- yeah, so absolutely. So, when, so you know where the problems come in. If you have, um, let's say, a news feed, the movie feed that thinks you are going to like X because of everything, every data point it's analyzing about you. What did you read previously? What did you watch? What did you buy on Amazon? What did you post on Facebook? Whatever it's analyzing about you, it is making assumptions. And the more assumptions it makes, the more assumptions it will continue to make. And this is where your bias could come in, your uh, feeding of very one-sided information to any good, any individual will come in, uh, where if you want to sell advertising, you want them to keep clicking, you will just keep feeding them those things that make them click on something. You're not giving them a diversity or variety of opi opinion for because that's not how your algorithm is designed. Right. That's not how the data set is designed. So. Personally, to cut to the chase, I love AI for very specific targeted uh, um, problem solving, like car sensors, like cancer treatment. Um, all of those things are not possible without it, like assistant, bi like biometric um, theft catching in, uh, in cybersecurity, where you don't just do biometrics based on thumbprint or iprint, but how do you, as an individual, type on a keyboard? How do you move your mouse? There's so many points about a person that an algorithm could learn and say, yep, I could say with 80% certain, certainty that you're accessing this from a different computer, but you're still Michelle. Yes. 
and, and those are incredibly important and they make life so much better. Where you get into some controversies in the second one that I suggested and, you know, it's, and you really have to understand it and take those algorithms with a big, big, big grain of salt. <laughs> <laughs> well, but I think that's so important, right? Because I think, I think people think that AI is going to take over the world and it could. It could. It, it could. Yeah. And, and, if it do, and if it does, without those caveats being in place, that's where da the danger zone is. Absolutely. Because, so it's leveraging AI to solve these, I'll call it discrete problems, right? And, and allowing it to pick up on the, those trends, but then having uh, the human mind and empathy and understanding, and also that the fact that not everything is rational in this world. You may think it is, but uh, I don't think that uh, the algorithms can can necessarily um, take that into into account. Absolutely, and actually, for the for your listeners and for you, and you have the young kids, I suggest a Netflix documentary called Social Dilemma. <laughs> if you haven't seen it, see it, and make your kids see it. It's fascinating on this subject. I absolutely, I absolutely will. It, it is so great to have caught up with you, Galena. Um, you're still doing amazing things. I'm so proud to know you. Thank you uh, again for the impact that you've had uh, had on my life. Um, uh, and hopefully I'll get to have you on the, on the podcast again. But I'm going to say that's it for this episode. Uh, if you enjoy the show, please subscribe and share with your coworkers. You can find us on your favorite podcasting platforms, iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, uh, wherever you find and listen to podcasts. And thanks again for everyone for listening. And a big thank you to Galena for the great discussion. Well, thank you for having me. It was really my pleasure.